Welcome to the Cashflow Ninja, the podcast sharing how to create and grow income streams and manage, multiply, and protect your wealth in the new economy. Are you tired of trading your time for money? Do you desire freedom today instead of retirement in 10, 20, or 30 years? I'm MC Lobsher, and this is the Cashflow Ninja. This is Cashflow Ninja. I'm MC Lobsher. Thank you so much for spending your most valuable resource. Your time once again with me on the show. Everything Cashflow Ninja is at CashflowNinja.com. We've got over, what is it, 820 podcast episodes right now. We've got tools, resources, programs. And don't forget to grab a copy of my new book, The 21 Best Cashflow Niches, CashflowNinja.com forward slash 21 niches. When you grab a copy of the book, I'm going to give you access to a digital version of the book an audio version of the book, uh, a curated library of interviews of Cashflow Ninjas sharing and discussing the niches that are in the book and more, more bonus features. That's CashflowNinja.com forward slash 21 niches. I've got a fantastic show for you today. A uh, friend of the show and partner, Matt Faircloth from DeRosa Group is joining us. Matt, great to see you, my friend. Oh, good to see you too, MC. I'm sorry, I was just busy reading the... 21 Best Cashflow Niches book that I happen to have an autographed copy of here sitting on my desk. Guys, sorry about that. No, awesome to be here, MC. Uh, thank you for having me. Glad to be a repeat guest here. And, and I, I do love your show and your audience and your program. So thanks for having me. Awesome. And of course, multifamily is one of the niches. Spoiler alert. Yeah, in the 21 Best Cashflow <laughs> Spoiler Niches. Spoiler alert, right. <laughs> Spoiler right. alert in the book. Yeah. So for folks not familiar with you and what you do, can you please just share a little bit about your background and your journey yeah. with them? No problem. Uh, Matt Faircloth, the uh, company's called the DeRosa Group. Uh, we're a real estate company dedicated to transforming lives through real estate. Uh, we focus on residential uh, housing. Uh, and we w- what we do is we plug people that don't want to go through the day-to-day time investment that it takes to manage residential housing, but want to enjoy the financial benefits that it takes from residential housing. Um, And we create above market standard living spaces that people are proud to call home. Um, And we uh, use top tier A plus employees to run those uh, those properties that are able to make a great living for themselves, uh, providing awesome housing for people and making great uh, return on investments for investors. Awesome. And Matt's been a previous guest on the show uh, he's just shared so much value in previous episodes. So if you want to check out those episodes, go to cashflowninja.com and just type in Matt Faircloth or DeRosa Group. And what, some, some of his interviews are also featured in the bonus section that comes with, uh, with the book. Um, we did an episode last year and we talked a little bit about you know, strategies for the time uh, and specifically strategies that are uh, that yeah are a little bit different, but in a different way to look at real estate and underwrite real estate and implement and so forth. Because of course, we were living during a pretty during a pretty different time. So yeah, different, different strategies for different D. times. Um, right. Yeah, and and there was a there was a lot of great stuff that came uh, out of that since then. So I wanted to do a, a just a quick recap on that for folks. Um, what were some of the, the, just some of the lessons that, that you've learned over the past 12 months or so in the multifamily space that's worked on some of the properties? Because um, there's a lot of success stories and a, there's a lot of stuff 
um, that you and your team have implemented and executed uh, very, very well in uncertain times and in yeah. times of, of great change. Yeah, yeah, I'll say that. I mean, uh, you know, in, in a lot of ways, you know, when, when COVID hit um, almost uh, two years ago uh, to the date, uh, you know, it was one of those things we just weren't sure what the next day was going to bring in residential housing. I mean, COVID was um, in a lot of ways at the core of it, an income crisis, you know, it was an income crisis for America, for Amer- American incomes, um, you know, felt what we thought that they were going to fall way off for everyone. Now, you know, think what you will of it, but the government providing a lot more money to, to, you know, prop us up and maybe more money we needed or whatever to keep things going. Right. Um, made it way less of an income crisis than we thought it was going to be. Um, but for the beginning, or the, the first six months or so, uh, when you and I first talked, um, we were very uh, concerned on a day-to-day basis what how the income crisis of COVID was going to affect real estate because people need income to be able to pay their rent and their and their financial obligations, whether they regardless of whether where, what end of the financial spectrum they're on. You know, I mean, l- low income, high income, moderate income, whatever it is, you got to have uh, money coming in to be able to meet your expenses. Um, and COVID stopped a lot of that money coming in for a little while there, so we had to. Uh, you know, it opened up what I would say, looking back on it now, um, in that the best thing that we did was to open up lines of communication with tenants and with, uh, with the government, right. Um, and with agencies that were willing to help people. And so we were able to be successful. We won property that went from 50% occupancy at the beginning of COVID to 98% occupancy, uh, today. Um, we've had other properties that had financial dips, but they came back out of it. Um, and we had the property that I work with you on, on the residences of Diamond Ridge that, um, we had phenomenal performances on, uh, on that property. We just had our one year anniversary on that property, um, through COVID and what, uh, what that, what, what I will say is that through communicating with tenants for tenants that weren't able to meet their obligations to negotiate exit, exit negotiations or exit protocol for them to say, okay, I get you can't afford to be here. You probably could just wait until the moratorium's over, or you probably could just wait until you get a job, or probably could just wait. Why don't we find a way to help you find another home um, or to give you an incentive to go? Uh, it's called cash for keys. Um, or just let's all face the music that when the eviction moratorium ends, you're going to owe us like, you know, 13, 14, 15 months worth of rent. And we can dig our put our head into the sand like an ostrich, or we can engage in that. And uh, if they wanted help, we, we were able to reach out to government agencies to get them help. Um, and the majority of our tenants, uh, we were able to negotiate exits on or, or get or convince that it was really time for them to move on and find somewhere else that they could afford um, or, or go out and get help on their own. And so we were able to get a lot of folks to exit, including the residences of Diamond Ridge. Then if you've got a vacant apartment during COVID, you know, what, what you can do is you can market that you've got, you know, the, we, we did ca- uh, touchless showings, like no human contact throughout the whole showing tenants show the unit to themselves in a lockbox that gave them the code when they came up um, online leases. Uh, and what's great MC is all this technology already existed, right? What we did was just on us, but a lot of landlords did, but we, I believe that our, our company was one of the first to do this. We assembled a lot of the technology that was there and uh, put it into a touchless showing package. And then after we did it for a couple of months, a lot of other landlords were doing it behind us in the markets that we were in. But that enabled us to choose the best tenants that we could. And so for the properties that were low occupancy or low performing, 
they performed much better because we were able to put great tenants or able to afford maybe had essential worker status or uh, or were able to maintain their income during COVID. So it enabled us to get uh, great people that wanted to treat our properties like home into the properties. Um, it enabled us to get help for those tenants that wanted it. And for those that didn't want help or wanted to just you know, uh, just hang out in our properties and wait till things were going to be over. We were able to negotiate exits from them too. So looking back on it, MC, the, the one word I would say that caused us to win during this whole thing was communication. Yeah. That's the big, that's the big thing. And, and being proactive, uh, and just to see that, uh, first was, was, was great because yeah, you want to stay on top of that, especially during times of change, and you want to stay in in, in, in communication and navigate this together because essentially they're partners in, yeah. in that whole process. And um, looking at from that way, certainly, definitely, definitely was uh, was an asset um, during during that time. And it's just been incredible mm-hmm. to see what what has happened and a lot of the a lot of the uh, the properties. Um, let's talk about. Current strategies and and thoughts, um, things that mm-hmm. you can share right now, as far as in the in the multifamily real estate market, maybe some of the things that you're seeing out there. What are you seeing in the markets that you're operating in, and what are your thoughts on current strategies uh, in the times that we're on right now? Because they're evolving, uh, they're constantly evolving. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that in one of these in, in this time when people thought that real estate was going to absolutely take a nosedive, it actually thrived. You know. Um, and, and that, but that that's created a ton of speculation and I'm seeing that rampant in my industry it being a mid-sized multifamily operator and owner. Um, and I'm seeing it rampantly in the smaller space. Hey, Zillow, right. Um, let's talk about, let's talk, not let's talk about that, but that's a case in point of rampant speculation that got too far, that, that got too far off the rails and had to correct itself. Right. Not yep. Zillow, the Zillow thing's not a sign of a crash. It's a sign of speculation. That's all that is. Yep. Um, and so we're seeing more and more, uh, speculation come into the space. And so, um, it's been hard for us. It's, it's been a challenge, not a challenge, but it's just, it's, it's been our mission to stay disciplined. Um, on what we focus on. And so what we did was in, instead of saying, hey, this thing's on fire, let's go. The market's white hot. Let's go from that. We're my company's only in two markets, Lexington, Kentucky, and Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Which Winston-Salem's like you could call that the Piedmont Triad of North Carolina. So that's Winston, Greensboro, and High Point, right? Yep. So we're active though in those two markets, and we have some assets in Pennsylvania. But that's really it. Other operators that I know of said, okay, we're in these three markets now. What we're going to do uh, as we come out of COVID, we're going to go and add these four more markets to our portfolio. And we're going to double down and expand out and go and get into a lot more markets to kind of ride the tiger, if you will, and yep. you know, put more hooks in the water in more places. That, I believe, is speculation. We chose not to do that. Well, what DeRosa chose to do was to drill into the markets we were in and to just double down in the fields we were playing in. And that enabled us to play the knowns, the known entities that we have, which are the markets, knowing those markets like the back of our hand, the vendor relationships with property managers, construction companies, those kinds of things. We're able to leverage further with them and, and become tightened and, hey, let's tighten up together and, and get even closer partnership uh, to win through this thing. Um, and, uh, and, and just really put our ear to the ground in the markets we're in. That's enabled us to do some off the market deals and it's enabled us to assemble some really great opportunities just in those markets and not, and, and to resist the urge currently to expand in new places. Yeah. 
focus focusing yeah. on those two and that you know well and like you said i mean that's and and that's sort of one of the stories that i always tell about certain players in certain markets they're the go-tos and you guys have become the go-tos in that market that puts mm-hmm. you in a position of strength to pick up more properties and more deals like you mentioned off market and then obviously mm-hmm. the scalability is, is quite incredible um you had a comment we also to yeah. add to that, we also are not pushing into top tier markets because yep. that's the that's the one thing that new money is doing is the yep. new money coming into the space or those that want to make a big splash in real estate for the first time or say, hey, you know what we should do? Let's go after Atlanta. Let's go after Raleigh. Let's go after Dallas. Um, let's go after Austin, Texas. Well, hey, listen, man, everybody in the world knows those are great markets to invest in, um, but they're not the only markets in the US and they're certainly not the only markets that are thriving in the US, but they're the, they're the ones that the newspaper talks about, right? Or that the, that the internet talks about or that, that are memes as great as great real estate markets. So the problem is, is that you're going, yeah, you're going to, you're in a top tier market, but you're going to overpay because of the amount of competition and new money that are in top tier markets. Um, and so we don't play top tier markets. We play more regional markets as a state, right? So we play the state of Kentucky, but we're not in the number one market in the state of Kentucky. We're in a tertiary market in the state of Kentucky. Yep. We play the same in North Carolina. And those tertiary markets are seeing the same inflation growth they're seeing the same job growth. They're seeing the same injection of capital, but it's just not as hot and sexy as Raleigh. Winston-Salem's not as hot as Raleigh is, but it's seeing the same growth trajectory, if not better than Raleigh is. Yeah. And I just wanted to say, because of the, because of just, I mean, the new dynamic, you know, I talk uh, a lot about everything has changed, where yep. people work, how they work, where they live what places they now rent or buy, um, you know, where they vacation. It's everything yeah. has changed because the dynamics has changed so much in real estate and tertiary markets have really benefited from this, mm-hmm. from an influx okay. of people. Think of all the people moving out of major cities or, you know, primary markets to get, you know, I guess more land or more amenities or lower cost of living. I mean, you can make a whole laundry list of why why people have done that, um, but they've really, really benefited. If you look at the population growth in those markets, I mean, there's an uptick in folks moving there. There's an uptick, mm-hmm. and, and like you said, that, that they have they were positioned to benefit from all these massive changes that were happening nationally, and they benefit from it locally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and just rising tide raises all boats, you know. Um, the, uh, the, the national market's been rising and, and, uh, it's becoming less and less attached to where you live, you know, um, look at New York city, look at San Francisco, you know, I mean, look at some markets that were untouchable two years ago, um, but have really seen a major correction rightfully so, because you don't need to walk out your front door and be at your job anymore. You know, now you can at least commute a couple of days a week. You know, it's really opened up the playing field. Um, additionally, MC, we don't invest. Uh, what we do is we look for job diversity. So you're yep. not going to see DeRosa playing in a market that's like 50% tech or yep. 50% oil and gas. Um, we don't play in markets like that. We, if, if a specific industry is more than 20% of the employment base in a city, we will not invest there. Yeah. 
because no. that will lead to a rust belt at some stage, you know, of, sure. that, of that market, right? And especially- Look how quickly things are changing. Look how quickly things are changing in the US with regards to like economy and, and industries and things like that. There's industries that are being born or that are die, that have died in the last like three to four years, right? Um, and so I don't want to, these are things that are beyond my control. I don't want to hitch my wagon to something that's a mile and a half outside of my control with regards to what happens to oil to oil and gas, right? Yep. Um, you know, it, it, if if all these things different different happen, maybe the markets that are that are heavy in a specific industry could do well. But likely, whatever happens, it's going to be beyond my control. Right. <laughs> you know? and, yeah. And it'll yeah. happen so quickly too. That's what I continue to say to folks that I don't think people understand. You know, from a risk management standpoint and looking at things like you know the world's change. It continues to change. It changes all the time. But it's never changed at this the speed that it's about to change. You know, fourth industrial revolution speed. You've got the Internet of Things, five G, three D printing, AI, robotics. I mean, this it's exponential kind of change. So to your point, you know, before you know it, there's an Amazon location with a lot of workers, and now all of a sudden you've got a drone dropping off boxes at your house six months later. What does that working do? on it? Yeah, what what does that do to line workers, folks that are now packaging the boxes in the facility, working in there, the drivers, like all these things, right? You can't control that. How you can Mm -hmm. control that then is looking at the market, looking at the diversity of employment so that if a certain industry gets disrupted heavily, then it doesn't really, uh, it's not such a massive blow to a specific market like you know, like like it was in the Rust Belt states with yeah. automotive and manufacturing and that kind of stuff. I'm not a speculator, MC. And, and I think that like, you know, if I were a speculator, then I would be, okay, I'm going to place a bunch of my chips on this city, this market, and it's going to either go up or down. So I'm listening to Ray Dalio, um, his book, uh, his book Principles right now. And I've, I know yep. his story uh, that he bet heavy when he was a, when he was a, a hedge fund manager on the market going down and it went up, you know, uh, and it bankrupted him. Right. And yep. now Ray Dalio is a perfect example of somebody who can, you know, rebuild and rebuild and rebuild. Now he's a, you know, is one of the most successful hedge fund managers ever um, because he got up on his feet and rebuilt, but he was the first one to say, and he did in his book about how, you know, he went all in and was wrong, you know, and so now what he talks about now is about like the 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 uh, checking his ego to the point where I could be wrong on things. And so you rarely see him go all in on things anymore because th- there's a certain level of, of being humble to it. They're like, well, I yep. might not know everything um, in that. And I feel the same way in that there's things I don't know and there's things I can't control. And yep. so I hedge those things by not hitching my wagon to one specific industry class um, or one specific anything. We, it, it's diversification is great. So we diversify on job base. We diversify on a few markets, a few management teams and that's, so I'm, I'm not going to get hung by one of anything. You know? Yeah. Great, great point. You know, that's how billionaires think. They're like, uh, they're like that gazelle standing in the Kruger national park in Africa. They're like, where's that? <laughs> I I'm okay for right now, but where's that predator? Where's that lion? Where's that leopard? Right. It's going to jump yeah. out any, any given point in time, and I might not know where it is. Yeah, so they're always assuming not. that there's something that they are not aware of that that is in their blind spot. Um, so they, yeah, so they they don't assume to know everything and have everything dialed in or know everything. Yeah. 
you know, so yeah, it's great. easy not to get sucked into ego in today's market because this uh, a rising market makes everybody look look like a superstar, you know. And there's a lot of real estate people in my industry walking around pounding their chest about how smart they are and how great they are and everything like that. But really, what you what you really are is you're really riding a wave that's going up, you know. Yeah. Um, and that and and you you picked a you picked a horse in a market that was rising over, uh, globally, um, in that. But I want to I want to invest long term. I want to be the one that's still talking about how the, how we did great. You know, if the market cycle shifts or if, if the carousel decides to stop or take a break for a little bit or whatever, I want to be able to still point to the success of my company and not just, oh, we did great. And really people know the majority of the greatness that we did was because we were on a rising wave. Yeah. You know, yep. and that's yeah. how I, I appreciate how you underwrite the deals too and how mm -hmm. the, the overall strategy of it too. Cause you, you know, obviously I, I, I see a lot of deals and you, there's a, let me just put it this way. There's a big difference how folks that have seen a full cycle <laughs> and have been through 2008 and 2009 and no cycles and understand yeah. the market, uh, underwrite deals than folks that haven't been through that. It's a world of difference. I, and yeah, this I, is I my friends when experience counts. So you, you want to, you want to, yeah, you yeah. want to be in a position um, and, and, and also leverage the skill set and capabilities of someone that has been through a full cycle because you know what it was like in 2008 and 2009 and 2010 and 11, where a lot of folks that have come into the market, let's just say over the past five years, they didn't see that ugly side of it. Nobody. Well, yeah. And, and I can tell you from going from living through that, uh, nobody saw that coming. We all knew that things were overheated. But nobody that I knew back then could have predicted how badly it was going to shift, right? Yeah. Um, and how much it was going to change uh, the market, the industry, and everything like that. And it, it is that that's what I'm referring to, really, in, in being humble enough to know that I don't know everything um, and investing it with enough diversity and enough. Uh, going going wide enough with our investment strategy that I'm not going to just pick a market that's going to be, oh, you know, long as if this carousel just keeps on going, we're going to go great. And so I'm going to buy a property at a 4% capitalization rate. And my underwriting is going to show that we're also going to sell it magically five years ago, five years from now at also a 4% Capitalization rate. You don't see that from us. You know, um, we, we don't, we know that things change. And there's a lot of syndicators out there that are crossing their fingers and hoping that the party keeps going. Um, whether it does or not, I hope it does. It'd be fun that if it did, but I don't care if it does, if it changes, because we're investing for us from a perspective of this thing can change. And we've baked in some conservatisms that can get us through uh, a, a dip in the market or a change in the market cycle or anything like that. We, we can handle that based on our strategy. We don't, things don't have to keep going for us to be successful. Yep, absolutely. And, and I know we wanted to talk a little bit about, about inflation too, you know, in 2020, what was it? 25% of all the dollars were created. Then I've tried to find a firm and concrete number of, do of, of dollars that have been created since then. I've seen numbers. I mean, you, I, I try to dissect all this stuff, but it ranges from like, you know, 30 to 40%. I've seen some numbers out there. I don't know how accurate these are, um, but all I know is it's a lot <laughs> and it's not well, stopping. It's, it's moved so fast. It's hard to pin it down because of how much we printed and how much um, and you know, and there's also backdoor printing MC, which is yep. why like it's hard to pin it down, like quantitative easing and things like that. 
they're backdoor ways to print money. It's not just, hey, we're going to make more money. It's just yep. there, there are ways, well, we're going to buy back our own debt or we're going to do, you know, I mean, we're, we're going to manipulate the, the the magic wand or whatever it is, or we're going to, we're going to artificially hold rates down. Those are backdoor ways to print money too, uh, whether it's actually turning on the printing press or just, you know, causing more money to flow into the system one way or another. Because so it's hard to pin it down how much has happened, but you're right. There's a ton more money in the market. And I see a lot more money chasing things these days. And it just goes back to supply and demand, right? People have said, oh, I, I, I know you've seen the charts. They're like, well, you know, when the GDP dips this way and this interest rate dips like that, when there's the intersection of those two lines, that always means we're going to have an, a recession. You've seen these yep. economists that point to these, the, these are their tea leaves, right? That they yep. talk about inflation yep. or whatever it is. Yeah, it's economics 101, man. It's just supply and demand, you know? There's yep. not as much, there's there, there's more money now and there's the same amount of stuff, right? <laughs> you know? Um, and so if there's more money, but the same amount of stuff and the amount of stuff has what? It's diminished. How many yep. sea containers are sitting off the coast of California right now, right? Yep. You know, you've seen, like we're, we're not, you've seen these uh, microchip, uh, you know, like the coffee, like my, my wife. Yep. Yeah, my wife and I are we're thinking about buying a new vehicle. And we talked to my sister who told us that like the price of a vehicle for her went up like 15% because of the, the, the chip shortages, right? Yep. Um, long story there, right? But we, for the first time in, in my life that I can remember, are having real supply chain problems, you know, that it's very hard to get stuff from A to B and, and whatnot. It's, this is a COVID hangover kind of thing. But you take that, that means supply is gone. That, that means that there's just less stuff, right? You know, but yep. there's even more money for the stuff. There's only one thing can happen. Only one thing can happen if you've got a lot more money chasing less goods. Yep. It's simply inflation. That's it. I don't care what kind of chart you want to show me that talks about the GDP or this rate or that rate, or when this thing intersects or when the five-year treasury drops below a certain level or whatever it is. Those are all good indicators, but let's just go basic. I can, I can explain that to my eight-year-old. Yep. On you know, there's more money now, and there's less stuff. What what do you think is going to happen to prices? You know, <laughs> right? Yep. Um, yep. Yeah, it's the way it is. Oh, abs- absolutely. And 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 I mean, like you said, there's so many different ways to dissect dissect it, and it's kind of comical to see some news headlines, especially when they're comparing currencies. And I'm like, uh, everybody's doing this, guys. Not just the the U.S. The 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 difference is because you know a lot of folks would say, oh, the U.S. dollar index is actually going up. I said. It's the world reserve currency. People in Brazil have to hold dollars as reserves. People in the U.S. don't have to hold Brazilian reals or South African rands or as reserves. Every, there's still a demand. So when you compare currencies, it, it's a completely different ballgame. You compare the currencies to the goods and services in any economy. You see inflation just because, like you said, the basic principle of, of, of supply and demand and real estate. And sorry, go ahead. No, you can't compare currency to currency. Like you said, yeah. you've got to compare currency to real usable goods. Exactly. Like let's talk about dollars to gallons of milk, you know, exactly. or dollars to gallons of gasoline, you know, uh, or dollars to sticks of lumber, to 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 real consumable commodity based goods. That's know? it. Yeah. yeah, you start you start to if you treat the dollar or any other currency as just a commodity and compare it to other commodities and then look at charts because you know what yeah. what's the joke they say if you torture data enough it will confess 
So you could spin it, you know, you could spin your web and torture the data and make it show what you want to show. But the reality is the person at street level, we go out and we shop, like you said, gallons of milk to dollar. You're like, man, what just happened here? Or, hey, I just, you know, bought some chicken or beef or whatever you're buying at the at the grocery store. You, yeah. you see it. And they're like, oh, COVID, and anybody, Eddie, COVID is everyone's excuse now, right? Like, oh, why, why is my, why is this, you know, beef, why is ground beef up $2 a pound? Oh, COVID, you know, is it, is it really COVID, you know? Um, so that's one. So as you said, the intersection of supply and demand, um, but also there, it, it's, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy too, in that a lot of people are talking about inflation and there, and there are people like you and I sitting here predicting it. So right now there is a business owner listening to you and I talk, right. And they're deciding, you know, these guys are right. I'm going to raise my prices, right? Um, and that, and and there's really not you and me, but whatever. They're reading the ad on USA Today or whatever that's talking about inflation. Like, yeah, you know what? I'm I'm going to raise my rates or I'm going to raise my price because because of inflation because things are going up. And so it's a self fulfilling prophecy. So that's what's going to create. Uh, an increase in the cost of goods. Blend that in with the cost of labor because it all goes down. It all comes back to labor. And I think that's what is going to cause this job shortage that we're, the, the employment shortage that we're having. Mm-hmm. You have people sitting on the fence, partly because of unemployment uh, benefits increasing or whatever, they're waiting for a better opportunity. And, and I will probably face, not probably my, myself, but I think that we should all admit that maybe we were underpaying a lot of Americans for a long time. Right, um, that maybe seven, eight dollars an hour minimum wage is probably there, no one can live on that. Right, yeah. people, it's hard to live on fourteen, fifteen dollars an hour in today's economy. Right, so yeah. you got companies like Amazon that are now starting MC at twenty five dollars an hour. Yeah. Right, yeah. Burger King and McDonald's, like entry level, um, entry level blue collar jobs or service level positions, are now paying more and more money. Um, that's going to pull up the cost of goods too, unfortunately, you know, because it just goods are going to rise to meet that, to meet those new late wage rates. So it, yep. it's going to be a gallon of milk. Cause if you look at, if you look at a gallon of milk that equals the average Americans uh, time working. So if you compare goods to time of hours of hours of compensation versus dollars, it'll probably stay about the same, you know, but if you correlate wage rates to cost of goods, we're going to see a, we're going to see an increase on both as well. And that goes back to cost of living, you know, which is my, my playground. So, yep. Yeah, exactly. And in real estate, if you think about the values of real estate that we've seen nationally, I know markets are, every market is different, but nationally you've seen that. Yeah. There's been an increase of the value of it. A lot of money going in there because the folks are looking for safe havens. And if you look at throughout history, you know, what, where wealth is, has, has been stored and, and, and what is maintained its wealth. It is real estate and it's specifically real estate that provides affordable living for folks too. They're going to have to uh, have a place to, a place to live. So um, that's been one of the asset clauses that's really, really uh, maintained value and an outlet for, for investors. You know, I'm just thinking when you were saying, about the the income of a lot of folks and and what they're paid per hour. If you're on a fixed income, you know, in the last two to three years, like it's it, it's you're you're squeezed. You're squeezed regardless mm-hmm. of what your income is. You know, if you're on a fixed income, you're squeezed. So it, even if you have a W two and can move some of that money into something that is an asset that will benefit from this, 
you know, that's a solution to some of it. If, because there are probably a lot of folks listening to us that are on a fixed income. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's been a, it's, it's been a, it's been a great one. So definitely something to, to, to stay on top of, to be cognizant about, to take into a strategy. And then the other thing I think that is central to our conversation today is diversification because yeah. nobody has a crystal ball and it's a tough business. The crystal yeah. ball business is a tough one. Yeah, man. Everybody, everybody thinks people like you and me know the whole future. But I mean, just as I said before, there's so many dynamics that happen in the world. Um, so many things are unpredictable. Nobody had COVID in their underwriting and whatever's going to happen tomorrow. I really have no idea. You know, yep. I know, I know I'll eat Turkey on Thanksgiving, but that's about it, you know? Um, but, and, and I think that you're going to be prepared for these things. So part of being prepared is just not putting all your eggs in one basket and diversifying as best you can with in, in markets that you understand. So not speculating and saying, you know, I'm going to just you know, buy in Raleigh or buy real estate in Orlando, just so I'm diversified. I have no connections. I have no contacts. I have no, I don't have any knowledge of that market. Um, So we believe in diversification from a, uh, that's why we're not only just in one market as a company, we're in a few different markets that are not even in the same state as each other. They're far enough apart. They're not, they're not affected by the same winds of change. Um, Aside from national things that affect everybody. Um, but regionally, they're not affected by the same winds that that uh, that affect the other one. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, interesting that you mentioned principles from Ray Dalio. Really short read, by the way. Just kidding. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm li- in my events, I'm listening to it. it. It's a quick plug for him. I'm listening to uh, the, uh, him narrating it, and it is animated. There's an animated, like a cartoon of him animate of him talking through his book. So yeah. that keeps me engaged. But yeah, this that that is a that is you got to be committed to read that book. <laughs> yeah, and and interestingly enough, he's very famous for his diversification strategy. Yes, his four seasons portfolio. So obviously, Ray looks at looks at this, and the same thing. Back to your point, he doesn't have a crystal ball. So there's times of inflation, there's times of deflation, there's times of economic boom, there's times of economic decline. So he essentially look, looks at looks at his four seasons and then positions his portfolio uh, for that. So he doesn't have to day, you know day trade in the business that he's in or just overall his assets. So he's positioned it because he doesn't have all the answers. So um, that definitely plays into the diversification. And then obviously being aware of some of the other things that we need to be cognizant about, such as inflation, what's happening in the job market, changes, disruption, what's happening in the employment market and so forth. Mm Mm-hmm. I agree. I try and translate as much as I can about Ray Dalio's philosophies into real estate as I can. I know he's not a real estate guy, but I try and translate that. And I mean, I, I love, I love a humbly is too about what he, about his loss, about, you know, his losses, his gains, everything like that. So, um, so what we do for diversity, for diversification for our portfolio yep. is we, you know, picked economically diverse markets and then we drilled in and build best in class relationships in those markets and that. So, when I say diversification, I'd say, like I said, it's not like we're picking 10 markets. We just pick two that are different enough 
that, you know, that, that they're, you know, that they're different. Right. Um, and, uh, and we just drill in and build relationships and build and, and, and build economic relationships there. One market is Lexington, Kentucky, which is about as different from Winston-Salem, North Carolina, as you can get, right? Like Winston-Salem, it's funny, actually, as I think about it, Winston-Salem is one of the biggest, is pretty much the the home of auto racing is where it was, where, you know, the Winston cup and things like that. Yeah. Um, and that, and, uh, and the Lexington, Kentucky is the home of horse racing, right? So they're about as different as you can get, right? Uh, Lexington has 4,000. 400 horse farms all around the city, um, many of which are employers uh, of our tenants because we 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 attract we go for uh, C class uh, and B class blue collar housing um, and uh, and and low priced white collar housing uh, and, and that and that's and that's also what I think to be somewhat recession resistant. There's folks out there that are buying new construction A class or um, you know high end swanky bougie properties. That's not our thing because. If we do have a slowdown MC, that's the first place you're going to see it because people yep. are going to start you know, people that are making $120,000, $130,000 a year living in a $2,000 plus apartment that's got an iPad in the wall, you know, and a pet washing station. The first thing they're going to do is if they start feeling the squeeze, they're going to move out. You know, um, my tenant making 30 to 40 grand a year, if they lose their job, they'll find another job. There's a lot of 30 to $40,000 jobs out there that yep. they can get. The, the the bank manager making $120,000, $130,000 a year living in the A-class might not find another job at that pay scale. They might have to take a lower paying job, which means they have to move, right? Yep. So we don't invest in, in top tier in top tier asset classes or top tier markets. We invest in the middle. We also invest in the low end. You know, I'm, I'm a Trent, I'm a, I'm a former Trenton, I'm a recovering Trenton landlord. Um, and so I, I saw what, what C-class housing can do in that's what I owned in the, in the first downturn in 2008. And it did okay. You know, my, yep. my, my tenants that were working class folks saw the, you know, you know, they, they saw, they felt that downturns like anybody else did, but they got through it and they figured it out. My rents didn't drop. Um, and we just, we don't invest in war zones per se, because it's just, I don't want to put mine or investors money. I, that's me. It's speculating. You can make a lot of money in D-class real estate, but it's not, um, not something that we speculate in. So yeah. that those are some of the ways that we diversify what we do. And then uh, another a project we're working together on is just blending some of the the properties in different areas into into some things. Maybe you just want to sh- share s- something yeah. about that. Well, that's what it's it's fun to talk about diversification, but unless you can blend it across your portfolio, like that's where we invest. We yeah. invest in Kentucky, Winston Salem, a little bit in Pennsylvania, whatever. But if I don't offer those options to my investors, that I'm I'm keeping that diversification secret to myself, you know. Um, and so what we've decided to do is as we scale and as we see. You know, not that I see where things are going, but as I try and protect myself and my investors uh, from what we what we believe, you know, possibilities for the future may be, we believe it's important to expose people to a little bit of everything so that we can kind of normalize returns, you ride ride a rate ride a wave of increase up, but also protect ourselves from potential downturns by not being tied to one horse, you know, yep. if, if you will, right? So. Uh, the gains on one property can help along another property, right? So we've yep. started to do portfolio offerings, um, meaning like, like let's not just place a bet on one apartment building. Let's go buy several of them in several markets and have those returns blend out 
the blend in together into one rate, one rate of return so that we all win together. Right. And these are markets that we're already familiar with. And so we're doing a, a portfolio deal in Lexington, Lexington and Winston-Salem, two great markets that are going to, you know, pull each other up and, and that expose each expose investors to the best of both markets using the resources and the, um, and the vendor relationships we have in both those markets. Awesome. Yeah, awesome. I'm very excited about that project too. And um, we'll share everything that we're working on with you at cashflowninja.com forward slash DeRosa. So if you want to check out more information just on that exact project for diversification in times like this, where you have to invest a little bit different um, and uh, have to uh, utilize diversification, cashflowninja.com forward slash DeRosa. Matt, where can folks follow you? Where can they stay in touch? And uh, you put out a lot of great videos too on social media Thank when you. you're touring properties, and you've got your own YouTube channel. Where can they? Yeah. Uh, where can they uh, see all of those? They can get all of that jazz. I mean, like, I'm, I'm sure your your link would take them there too. But through Cashflow Ninja forward slash Derosa. But just simply, real simple, my company website DerosaGroup.com, D-E-R-O-S-A Group.com. They can pick up a copy of my book, the Amazon bestseller, Raising Private Capital. Yep. Um, you know, glad to be there with its uh, with its with its uh, sister book, Cashflow Ninja, uh, twenty one best cashflow uh, niches. Uh, they can also follow our YouTube channel on that site. They can um, hear about education offerings that we have. They can check out my wife's podcast, The Real Estate Invest Her Show, um, and many many other ways that they can keep up with us, including joining our mailing list there at DeRosaGroup.com. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show again. Always fun to have a conversation and sharing so much value for all of my listeners and viewers. I'm grateful to call you my friend, MC. Thank you for having me here. I really enjoy our conversations as always. Absolutely, my friend. And thank you for spending your most valuable resource, your time once again with me on the show. Everything Cashflow Ninja at CashflowNinja.com. And of course, you could grab this little guy, the 21 best cashflow niches, creating wealth and the best alternative cashflow investments at cashflowninja.com forward slash 21 niches. Until next time, live infinitely. This presentation is for educational and informational purposes only. The information being presented and considered does not consider your particular financial objectives or situation, and it does not make personalized recommendations. This material is not intended to replace the advice of a qualified tax and legal advisor or other qualified professionals, and you should not use the information in place of a customized consultation with a licensed professional regarding your specific personal financial objectives. Situation and needs. We believe the information provided is reliable, but we do not guarantee its accuracy, timeliness, or completeness.